6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck continues his teaching on the book of Hebrews, chapter 11. Einstein's great insight back at the turn of the previous century was that led to his general theory of relativity is that time is a physical property. We live in four dimensions, not three. Three spatial dimensions and time. A physicist today will not speak of space and time separately. He'll always speak of space-time. And four of these ten are directly discernible. Six, they would say, are curled, using vector terms, they're curled in less than 10 to the minus 33 centimeters, and therefore that's less than the wavelength of light. So you can only infer the other six indirectly. It takes some elaborate scientific things to get at them, but the point is that current thinking is there's 10 dimensions, four are directly discernible, six are more elusive, but nevertheless real legitimate dimensions. I think that's interesting that our science has finally caught up to where Nachmanides was back in the 13th century by studying what? Not particle accelerators, studying the Word of God. You say, well, there's four dimensions. Isn't that interesting? Is that, is that, that we thank Einstein for that. Einstein should have read Paul's letter to the Ephesians. It might have given him a clue. Because Paul speaks in verse 18 of chapter 3 of Ephesians of the breadth, the length, the depth, and the height. Whoops. How many are there? Four. Okay. Breath, platos, makos for length, bathos for depth, and hupsos for height. But the first one actually means breath and can mean breath-like extent. It can infer time. So am I saying that Paul knew was, was, was of our hyperspaces and that three were spatial and one was... No, not necessarily. The Holy Spirit certainly did. And that may have guided his, his, his flow of thought here. But breadth, length, depth, and height. And the first word, the platos, can mean, uh, can be a, a Greek expression for time. So you've got length, depth, and height. Three, three spatial dimensions and height. Kind of interesting. We're, not, we're just getting started here. Just getting started here, okay? Verse 3 again, through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the Word of God so that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. Let's explore that one a little bit. When we were all in school, most of us, I think, got exposed to a model of the atom. There are several different models, but the most commonly known one visualizes a nucleus and one or more electrons spinning around that nucleus. The simplest example to talk about is hydrogen. The nucleus consists of one proton and an electron spinning around it. No problem so far, right? You realize that's in one plane. It's actually a three-dimensional thing, but that's okay. We'll get there. Now, this, of course, is not the scale, but we have a nucleus and electron. Fair enough. If we're going to make this to scale, there may be some usefulness to try to get a feeling for this. Well, the nucleus is about 10 
to the minus 13 centimeters. And point, point zero, 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 13 zeros and a one is the smallness of the nucleus. It's itty bitty, okay? All right. Now the electron spinning around it is in the neighborhood of 10 to the minus eight, point zero, 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 one. There should have been eight, I didn't count them, but there should have been eight zeros and a one, right? So you have to, the way you summarize these numbers, they're called orders of magnitude. If you're going to deal with very small or very large things, you typically just use powers of 10, okay? 10 to the minus 13 is very, very small. 10 to the minus 8 is not quite that small. Are you with me? Okay. It may be useful for us to get a feeling for the difference if the linear ratio between the two is 10 to the minus 8 divided by 10 to the minus 13, or putting it another way, that's... It's ten to the. There's a ten to the fifth difference between them. A hundred thousand difference. You, now you and I generally don't run into a hundred thousand differences. Let's try to make an example of that. Let's make a model of this electron and let's use a golf ball to represent the nucleus. Are you with me so far? Well, let's. We want to make something represent the electron spinning around this nucleus. How far away? Well, it would have to, if, if the golf ball, let's call it two inches, a little less than that, I guess, but let's call it two inches, um, the electron then would be how far away? Well, um, it turns out the electron would be about, uh, if, uh, if, if I have uh, one, it, it, it turns out to be about 55 football fields away. Okay. Yeah, wow, is right. That's, that's a long, is it, call it a mile. Call it a mile, okay? So, football field, I'm using it like a meter, but call it like a yard, okay? We're, it's about 5,500 yards. That's a long way, okay? Call it a mile in wrong terms. But that's just the linear. That's 10 to the fifth. But if I want to make it volumetric, I need the length, width, and height, right? So what I really need to do is cube whatever that is. Well, if I cube 10 to the fifth, that turns out to be 10 to the 15th. Now, the 10 to the 15th is a number so big that most of us can't relate to that. In fact, I was in a discussion with Dr. Edward Teller and his sidekick, Norris Keeler. We were on a board together, and they were talking about 10 to the 15th. And I said, boy, that's more than one second is to 30 million years. And they looked at me shocked. They use these numbers all the time at Livermore. They're atomic scientists, you know. And even they didn't really relate to the reality of a number that big, okay? Because 10 to the 15th is the same ratio roughly as one second would be to 30 million years. Do the math. Do the math. Figure it out. Do it on a piece of paper. You know, work it out. It's a, it, it, in, in, in rough size. Now, why am I, get, why am I getting into this? Because... If I'm saying that this podium is solid and Tracy comes up to me and challenges me and says, there's nothing there, she is more right than I am by a ratio of 30 million years to one second. Follow me? In other words, 10 to the 15 seconds to one second. There's, it's more true to say there's nothing here than to argue that this is solid. You see why? Now you say, well, that's kind of crazy because I can feel it here. No, what you're feeling is a collision 
between the atoms in my hand, and, or should, correction, the molecules. See, we've just taken a simple atom here. If you take several atoms and put them together, you get a molecule. And there's all different kinds of molecules. And my, my body is made up of molecules. This podium is made up of molecules. And when I put my hand here, the electrical fields of my molecules are colliding, so to speak, with the electrical fields of the molecules here. So I sense the illusion that it's solid. And it is solid in the sense that I can't penetrate it because I, I can't you know, relieve those electrical fields. But the point is that this reality that we are used to experiencing is an electrical simulation. That wall over there is not solid. It is more empty than solid by some incredible ratio. Follow me? Now, if I try to walk through that wall, I'm going to be very embarrassed, okay? Because my molecules won't, it will interact with those molecules and I'll be very embarrassed, okay? But for us to understand this, we've made a step toward trying to grasp our reality. There are neutrons that are not, not positively or negatively charged passing through us continually. And fortunately, they don't do any serious damage. But there are cosmic rays that impact the earth. That may be one of the secrets to aging, by the way. There's all kinds of hypotheses. But let's move on to something else here. One of the other discoveries of 20th century science is that the universe is made up of indivisible units. They call them quanta, and the study of this area is called quantum physics. What do I mean by that? Let's assume I took a line of some length, doesn't matter. I start with a length of line, and I can cut that line in half, can I? Obviously. And I can throw half of it away and just deal with half of it. I'll take what I have left, and I can cut that in half, can't I? And I can throw that away. And I take the half I've got left, and I can cut it in half, and I keep doing that, can't I? Every time I cut it in half, I throw away half, I have half left. And you would think at least in our imagination, that I could do that forever. No matter how small that got, I could always, conceptually at least, cut it in half and throw half of it away. And the shock to scientists in the 20th century that got into all of this, they discovered that that, that ain't true. If I get down to 10 to the minus 33 centimeters, now that's a very itty-bitty piece, but if I get down that fall and I try to cut that in half, something very strange occurs. It doesn't cut in half. It becomes everywhere at the same time. And they've actually confirmed this in the laboratory. Alan Aspect and his guys at CERN confirmed this some, more than a decade ago, that every photon in the universe, we're talking about subatomic particles that are smaller than an atom here much smaller than another, subatomic particles. Every subatomic particle knows what every other subatomic particle in the universe is doing. There's an immediate connection. And that makes no sense. It has implications philosophically that are extremely shocking. So much so that Boltzmann, one of the founders of quantum physics, committed suicide. Because he understood it and realized he couldn't handle it. That's called, this, the, the, the 10 to the minus 33 centimeters is what's called the quantum length, the Planck length in length. And the, the smaller than this, they lose locality. There is a Planck length 
There's a Planck term for mass, energy, length, and time. The ones we can relate to is Planck length. We've just shown you that. Planck time. Did you know that there's no period of time smaller than 10 to the minus 43 seconds? There's no such thing. It's my suspicion that that's equivalent. If I take lights traveling at the speed of light, that's pretty fast, going through my retina, or my iris, I should say, I think it takes 10 to the minus 43 seconds to get through there, or thereabouts. And that's what I think Paul meant when he wrote to the Thessalonians, when he spoke of in the twinkling of an eye, Harapazzo takes place. I think it's a hyperdimensional transition, and it breaks through the uh, physical barrier of the Planck time. But in any case, that's just one of my weird spe speculations. The point is, even time is a physical dimension that's made up of indivisible units. Now this is what leads to the real shockers we try to understand the universe. Whether we're talking about mass, energy, length, or time, all these things get down to a point where they're indivisible. What does that mean? They're digital. They're digital. It's like a piano. Have you ever strike, tried to get a sound that's between two keys? See, a piano in, a, in concept is digital. You've got black and white keys, but the point is each one is specific. And you don't, it's not like a violin where you can get any sound, some quite unpleasant. Okay? A piano, if you, you're going to get a C or a D or an A, you know, in other words, if it's, me, it's tuned properly, you, you can't get in between the two except to, to the extent there's a definitive place between the two, the black key between the two. You follow me? So in that sense, a piano is digital, okay? We discover that the entire universe is digital. And this shows, this shows up in the mathematics because we start taking integrations and so forth. It turns out that that's where all this starts to show up. And been, that's where they first recognized it and then it was experimentally confirmed. Now, let's stand back and we'll use... Uh, symbolically, we'll use da Vinci's Vitruvian Man to represent our reach as a person. That's us in the middle. And we'll go left and right, we'll call that size. To the left is small, to the right is big. Are we together? Studying the big side of things, getting larger and larger and larger and larger, we go to astronomy and astrophysics as our boundary, right? And the great discovery of 20th century science is that the universe is finite. It's not infinite. That's what led, the acknowledgement of that is what led to the Big Bang theories, which are conjectures as how it all started. Because they know it had to start. Somehow. And so they call that a, if you don't understand it, you give it a fancy name. They call that a singularity, right? Well, what's a singularity? Well, first there was nothing, and then it exploded. Now you laugh, that is exactly, that's the best we know. And there's all kinds of conjectures as to what happened 10 to the first 10 to the minus 43 seconds. And there's books written about where they try to guess what that's like. But the main point is, see, if the, the universe we know always go hot, hot things go to cold. You've got heat, it flows to cold. If the universe was infinitely old, it would be at a uniform temperature. But things are still flowing from hot to cold, which means it had a beginning that, and it hasn't finished yet. So it had a beginning somehow, and it's going to have what they call a heat death. When everything is a uniform temperature throughout the universe, no more work can be done, it's over. The physical universe is over. It's like a clock that's been wound up and it's been running down. Now, 
So we know on the large end of things, it's finite. And we could talk more about that. That gives, leads to discussions of astrophysics or astronomy. We call that collectively the macrocosm, largeness in the ultimate sense. Okay, let's go the other way. Let's talk about smallness. That leads us to quantum physics, subatomic particles. We discover that's digital. That's also finite. So we're shocked to discover infinity is totally elusive. We can talk about it mathematically. We can't find it in the world. We can't find it in bigness, and we can't find it in smallness. It doesn't exist. That's disturbing. There's some science fiction stories and movies made where people make a, a, a simulated world, put simulated world people in there, and they play and the plot line deals with it, and then they discover they themselves are simulated people in the simulated world. And, 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 and it's a very clever form of fiction to get across that, that these, bound, these different realities. Okay, now... So that's the, in the microcosm, it's digital. Now what does that mean? That means you and I find ourselves inside a digital simulation in which the reality is an electrical simulation. And uh, so the metacosm, now what's interesting, if we talk about the whole package, got microcosm, micro, the metacosm, the whole thing, Scientific American, in some of the articles Scientific American, point out, it appears that our universe is but a shadow of a larger reality. Well, that's what the writer in the book of Hebrews was trying to get across in verse 3. It's, it always fascinates me as a technologist, and my specialty is information science, is to discover some of our frontiers in science are anticipated in the Word of God. When we read it, the Word of God, we may not have the scientific background to fully appreciate its implications. But what survives is not our scientific textbooks, but the Bible. None of you would take a course in physics with 1960 textbooks, or 1950, or 1940. You'd laugh at it. But you can take a Bible course with the same Bible that Schofield used, or whoever, you know. Okay, we're down to verse 4. We're making great progress here. By faith... Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. Notice it's his sacrifice, not his character, that's the issue here, by the way. I think Cain had a remarkable character. He did a stupid thing, but he's... He, anyway, by which he obtained a witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and by it being dead, yet speaketh it. It's his sacrifice that made the difference. He wasn't better behaved. You could put, fill in a lot of blanks. No, it was a sacrifice that he obtained witness that he was righteous. What made him righteous? His conduct? No, his sacrifice. Okay? He's an example of one that chooses God's way to approach him. Cain chose his way. God had ordained a blood sacrifice back in Genesis 3, verse 21. By the coats of skins they'd be covered. A Levitical uh, hint very early. That was what God had ordained. Abel did what God requested. Cain did what he thought was a better idea. Didn't work. Okay, he gave the fruit of a cursed ground rather than the, the, what God had ordained. Cain is an example of one who thinks he can choose his own way to God. Doesn't sound like a bad idea, except God writes the rules. And by the way, the blood sacrifice did not make Abel righteous. What made Abel righteous was his faith, and the evidence of his faith was that he offered the type of sacrifice God required. 
Okay? It's his behavior that's to be, of, of doing what God told him is the issue. The blood itself never saved him. The blood on the cross did. God testifying of his gifts. Okay? And by the way, good question. How do they know their, you know, Abel's sacrifice was accepted, right? Cain's was not. How do you know? How did he know? How did Cain know that his sacrifice wasn't accepted? He put it on an altar? What happened? What? Good for you. Many people don't realize that. God in those days took it. Okay? And uh, fire from heaven? Absolutely. Moses and Aaron in Leviticus 9 experienced that. Gideon experienced it in Judges 6. Samson's parents in Judges 13. Elijah in 1 Kings 18, very dramatically at Carmel. David, 1 Chronicles 12. And Solomon in 2 Chronicles 7. You know, we read the Bible, we don't pick up on that maybe, but right on. We got someone doing their homework. I like that. That's good. Okay. Now, let's move on. By faith, Enoch was translated, raptured if you excuse the expression, uh, that he should not see death. Wow. And was not found, because God had translated him, for before his translation, he had this testimony that he pleased God. We get to Genesis 5, it's not quite clear. The writer of Hebrews elaborates on it for us here. The Hebrew of Genesis actually reads, in Genesis, he was there, and then he was not there anymore. <laughs> okay? Well, if that's the case, I probably have had some employees and companies I ran that were translated, yeah. <laughs> For before his translation, Enoch was well-pleasing unto God before his translation. He was translated because he was pleased. Okay? Because God was pleased. The fact that he pleased God was evidence of his faith. Okay? Because it's, see, he's ascribing his translation to faith. Okay? Because he had, he was well-pleasing. Because of his faith, he was well-pleasing. Because he was well-pleasing, he was translated. Okay, verse 6. For without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must do two things. Believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Two essential prerequisites. Two essential prerequisites. He that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek them. Two things. If you don't believe in the existence of God, you've got a problem. And it fascinates me to realize that God's, is, God is jealous of His role as Creator. We live in a culture that's denying that. And there's a specific judgment that God pronounces upon a culture that fails to acknowledge Him as a Creator. And that judgment is homosexuality. Ooh, yeah, read Romans 1, verse 20 to the end of that chapter. You're going to please God, you've got to do two, and you've got to believe that He exists. And you also need to believe that He is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. Okay, verse 7. By faith Noah, being warned of God of things not seen yet, namely rain. From the Scripture we draw the inference that it hadn't rained till then. We take rain for granted, but we live in a different ecology than Noah did. There are two huge discontinuities in the history of the planet Earth. One is the fall of Adam in Genesis 3, which introduced the entropy laws, I believe. And the other big discontinuity is the flood of Noah. And it's more than just a lot of water. The whole world changed in some very dramatic ways, if you study that carefully. Anyway, by faith Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved with fear and prepared 
an ark to the saving of his house, by the which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is by faith. He accomplished two things. He saved his house, of course, but he also condemned the world. We overlook that. The world is indicted by the fact that Noah did and they didn't. But all this because of things not seen as yet. And we believe it didn't rain until that time. And he showed his faith by building the ark, which accomplished two things. It condemned the world. For 120 years, this thing's sitting in his driveway, right? And he became heir of righteousness, which is by faith. So Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. He was saved by grace. Okay, we get to this guy, Abraham, the father of the faithful. Many titles in the scripture. By faith, Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should after receive for an inheritance, obeyed. And he went out not knowing whither he went. One of the greatest guys of faith was a guy who didn't know where he was going. <laughs> now most of this section from verse 8 all the way to verse 19 is going to deal with this interesting character, Abraham. Probably the richest man of, in the world at that time. The speculation by many scholars. But he went out not knowing where, whither he went. The very act of he departed from his country. That showed his faith. Didn't know where he's going. He's just trusting God is the point. He obeyed. Immediately, by the way, the Greek text has a present participle, which means the action occurred at the same time as the main verb. So he was getting up to obey. Immediately, God, God probably hadn't even finished speaking. He's on his way. That's the same thing we get in chapter 22 of Genesis. God says to offer your son. Next morning, he gets up and goes. Didn't think about it, mood about it. I'll pray for it, about, pray for it, make sure it's his idea for a week. No, no, next morning, he's on his way. He didn't mess around. By faith he obeyed and went to a place he would afterward receive as a future inheritance. He didn't know where he was going, but wherever he was going, he trusted God. That was going to be his inheritance, and he knew it would be better than anything he could imagine. You've been listening to 6640 the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Hebrews. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on 1-800-K-HOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.